mind telling me your name? Yeah, sure. My name is Becky Harlan. Michael Krogan, recreational hockey player, lawyer, <laughs> Chicago, Illinois. My name is Vernon Draper. Jamel Winston. I'm Jay Dev. Gina Christina Simo. Christian Glasset. Wait, actually, my yeah. name is William Hebert. All right, who are you? Who am I? <laughs> That's a damn good question. <laughs> I am a friend of yours. I am a computer scientist from France. I'm a human being. I'm also a gambler. I'm your mother. <laughs> I'm just everything that's good. Mixed with a little bang. Everything that's good mixed with some bang. And I'm Lizzie Peabody. This is Your Story Here, a podcast about humans and the common threads that bind us. I first started interviewing strangers after a couple of decades of being told not to talk to them. This show is about sharing some of the conversations that I've had. Now they're yours too. If you could live anywhere, where would you live? And I don't mean Tahiti in some fantasy world where you could weave artisanal beer koozies out of palm fronds and sell them on Etsy. Although, now that I think of it, that might actually work. If you have the luxury of choosing where to settle down, it can be a daunting prospect. And if you don't consciously choose where to be, you just sort of end up being where you already are. So lately I've been thinking a lot about whether where I am here in Washington, D.C. is where I want to be for the long haul. And if not here, then where? I thought this episode was going to be about how we choose where to live, but it wound up veering into territory that I did not expect. It wound up becoming about death. We think of death as the period at the end of the sentence, the thing that will find us all in the end, when in fact, death punctuates our lives constantly. And the stories in this episode emphasize to me how death can play an active role in how we choose to live. So when I came in and dropped off the ring, you said, well, you said you weren't going to live very long. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that could be, I don't know. Why did you say that? Silversmiths usually don't live that long. Do you want to see the shot? Yeah, I do. So... This is a wreck, always a wreck at the end of the week. Um, And then back here, I won't get you to, don't touch anything. Okay. Because you will get dirty. It gets very dirty polishing. Steamer, ultrasonic, Stevie. Hi, Stevie. Stevie uh, polishes and does some solders and helps out too. Super Mario, man. Hi, Stevie. And these are all just like little bits of rings and fittings and things that yeah lead and tin and brass and silver so do you breathe in a lot of lead dust no i try not to (laughs) i'm sure it gets on i always when i go home i always wash i always get you know i don't want to touch the kids before i shower Um, but no i i the only lead i usually touch now is uh, solder when I'm soldering. What's this? That's a bench pin. If you get dirty. It's not your fault. Yeah. Okay, what's your name? Lawrence Miller. All right, who are you? I'm a silversmith. 
in Old Town Alexandria. Did you always want to be a silversmith? How did you get into silversmithing? Um, well, a girl that I was dating, her parents' best friend was a goldsmith who needed an apprentice. And I thought it would impress her. <laughs> so we were in high school and I did it. I loved it. I couldn't believe that people made a living doing it. He told me that if I stuck with it, I'd be better than him one day. And I, I, I sat my parents down. I said, I don't, I don't need to do any. I need to go to college. I don't need to do anything else. What did you love about it when you started doing it? I, I guess, you know, I was always, I loved art and history. And this was kind of a, a mash of everything I could work on. You know, a, a candelabra that belonged to Marie Antoinette, and I wouldn't, you know, just, it's the best. It was getting my hands dirty and making people happy was amazing. You could get paid for it. I always figured I was going to be some starving artist for my whole life. In high school, I, you know, I would shave my head or I was every different color. I didn't care. I was figured I would be tattooed and. Do you have any tattoos? No, huh? I did. I did. It was a. Uh, it was here. It was a, that girl that I dated. Her name was right there. So then I covered it up, and now I'm getting it removed. Oh yeah. So How many? It's years on my later? ankle. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was I was 17 when I did that. Yeah. She was cool. She was. Clearly, she, you got her name tattooed to your ankle, yeah. and you launched. She launched right. your profession. She did. She takes responsibility for all of that. Oh, does she really? Are you well, guys still friends? No, well, I was. She, we got married, and then she died when she was 23. But I was, I was still friends with her family. I still am with her sister. We talk every now and then, special occasions. Yeah. She had a brain aneurysm. Yeah, it's weird. Just totally out of the blue. Yeah. I was down in Richmond when it happened, and my brother called me and said, you need to come home. And I came home, and he wouldn't tell me what it was. And then he, he told me, and I, I just fell down. He still says it was the hardest thing he ever had to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It shattered me for a good year. Mm -hmm. A good year, I was uh, a mess. And then, and then my mom hadn't, like, there's, so there's a lot of, mental illness in my family, my mom's side anyway. And and she had, so I had to take care of her and all the drugs and, uh, you know, every day. It was, it was a lot. And then the family that, uh, that was here before me that I apprenticed for retired. I had to take care of my mom. And then I just, it's just all this responsibility that I didn't realize I wanted kind of came and I took it. I just took it. How old were you then? Uh, I was 30. Yeah. How old are you? I just turned 30. Okay. Will you start by telling me your name? Sure. Samantha <laughs> Haskell. Samantha owns the only bookstore in the town of Blue Hill, Maine, where my grandparents lived. Over the years, I'd seen her around town and I had admired her from afar. For starters, she's really beautiful. And she has this serenity around her that makes her sort of otherworldly. And even though we're the same age, that always made me feel shy around her. Last winter, Samantha bought the bookstore. 
And when I heard this, I was impressed by her decision to stay rooted in a place pretty small and pretty far removed so early in life. And so this summer, emboldened by my microphone and my curiosity, I introduced myself. Like, it's so interesting you say that because I have totally admired you from afar, too, of being like, I would like to be your friend, but I like... <laughs> well, I'm extremely flattered by that. <laughs> Owning a business like you mm-hmm. do is like a pretty clear statement of like, I am here for the foreseeable future. What made you decide to settle down relatively young in like a pretty small town? It's a great question. I think... um Let's see. So when I graduated from high school here, there was like a big push and feeling from within myself and also, you know, through my friends um, and their families that the most important thing you could do is just get out of Maine, like this big push of like, okay, now it's time to go out and see the world. And if you stay, there's like something wrong or it's like you're not in a position where you're able to go. And so... I went to school outside of Boston for a year, and I just hated it. It was so terrible. (laughs) I was, like, in the suburbs, and I had friends that were at school in Boston, so I would spend a lot of time in the city, and it just, like, everything about it just felt, um, I knew it wasn't right. And so then I took a year off after that year, and then transferred to College of the Atlantic, so Uh, close by in Bar Harbor. And was able to find that balance there between not feeling stagnant, but feeling rooted in a place. And so then after graduating, I was working part-time at the bookstore at that point. Um, And that year, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And so, like, from there, it felt right to be here. I continued to um, feel more and more connected to the community. An incredible amount of support came for my mom and for my family at that point. Out of that, I think, came this very deep appreciation of this place and, and understanding that it's okay to stay. Yeah. And so in our generation is this like real kind of um, difficulty committing to things. And I've certainly felt that like in many aspects of my life I mean it's like just kind of this constant theme of like is this the right choice how do I know you know all these big questions and when you're there to be in support of someone else like all of those questions are removed hello Like maybe I'm a weaker person for admitting this. I feel like moving here with someone would feel different than moving here by myself. Okay, so that hits the nail. <laughs> yeah, I think like so. So I met Rob right around the time it was like a few months after my mom was diagnosed so it was all right around that time of like the decision to stay. It was like suddenly it wasn't just me here on my own, you know, fulfilling this um, caregiver role, kind of isolated from my peers. And there was now this like ability to have, you know, like a dating scene and a romantic, you know, excitement in that process is like, I think was also part of that, making that decision possible. Yeah. And how did you meet Rob then? He, um, 
moved here to apprentice at a farm in Blue Hill. Old Ackley Farm. Oh, Old Ackley Farm. Yeah, so near. chickens. Yes, okay, so <laughs> he was selling chickens at the farmer's market no in way. Stonington. Okay. And I was like a hardcore vegetarian, and I like walked past the stand one day and felt like compelled to go and buy one of these like very expensive organic chickens just to talk to him. And I proceeded to purchase chickens from him at the Stonington Farmer's Market every week for the entire summer oh just gosh. to strike up these conversations. What did you do with the chickens? Uh, so consulted all of the women in my life who are like my mom and my um, pseudo moms and these like strong women that like I learned all of their chicken recipes because I was trying <laughs> to like give them away to people. Did you notice her as like the girl who bought a chicken every week? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I definitely became a pattern. It took till the end of the summer, and we ran into each other at a dance party at Tinder Hearth. Oh. And he came up to me, because we had only interacted at the farmer's markets for, like, eight weeks. And he came up to me and said, hey, you're the girl that's been buying the chickens at the farmer's market <laughs> all summer. And I said, yeah, I'm a vegetarian, and I've been buying those chickens just to talk She's to like, you. like, I don't even really eat chicken. And I'm, you know, not that kind of, like, blunt person ever. But it just, like, got to the point where I was like, enough. Like, I'm just going to say it. It was, it was very bold. And then we both were, like, so shocked by it that we just, like, walked away. <laughs> no way! <laughs> we were, it was, like, like, nervous laughter. And then we both were just, like, it was like too overwhelming now, what do you say to that <laughs> and so then like finally we found ways to connect which i think was surrounded something around um hiking and tea or something like that but like here we are six years later <laughs> so which is great okay so tell me again what's your name my name is rob cushman okay and who are you i am a uh, a resident of the blue hill peninsula here in maine and i am i've been here for about I would say since 2010, involved in food and farming. Do you um, do you remember the first animal that you slaughtered? Yeah, I do actually. Uh, it was I, I, I did this uh, grad program in Boston in nutrition and food policy, and one of the professors had a small farm and she was raising uh, a bunch of rabbits, and one of my buddies in the program had been doing Peace Corps in uh, El Salvador, and he did a whole rabbit program for food security. Wow. And Jen, who was raising the rabbit, she invited him to come help out on Slaughter Day. And he invited me along. So I remember I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just stand off on the side. And it's rabbits can be a little gruesome. One of the techniques for stunning or stunning the animal is to actually, it's a little bit medieval, but to take a heavy bar, like rebar, and whack the base of the skull while the animal's upside down. Oh, you mean like while someone's holding the feet? Yeah, you can kind of hold the feet and just, and just right on the base of the skull. It's very effective if you're good at it. It sounds brutal, but it's amazing to see the animal just boom. And I was just sort of trying to be a bit of a UN observer on the side. But all, all the blood and possibly some other materials from he hit it particularly hard just splattered all over my body. Like, I was like off on the side and he, I just happened to be in the trajectory and just whack. And I would, I mean, literally half my body was like covered in sort of like this weird, sticky, bloody mass. And he was like, oh, I guess you're, in, you're getting involved today, you know? And I was, I just, I was like, I don't know whether it was like a little bit of bloodlust or, or what, but I was like, all right, I'm in. I'm not watching anymore. And that was, uh, I remember that it was great. It was weird. 
sounds a little gruesome, but it's the truth. Do you remember like anything about how it like made you feel? Did it feel any particular way, or did it just really feel like another yeah. job? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I just read so much about how important it was to do this kind of stuff um, that I was intellectually I was so on board that I, I think it was overpowering some of how I felt about life and death. And I think it only came later when I started to do pigs where, and I've been around and I started being around some people in the farming community here who were a little more ritualistic about the whole thing. Like I'd seen some of them go awry. I helped bleed out a pig that wasn't properly stunned for like 15 minutes, you know, massaging it and with other people. And, and, and you know, that gets to you. you. Then you start to think about wanting to do it well and, I just remember, oh, I just loved getting, I, I think that first day was great getting involved right away because I felt like I was tapping into something just primal. It's one of those things where you do something and you're like, oh, there's a genetic memory here, there's something going on. Yeah, you were just looking at your hands, which was in it, like, why? why? It was almost like, a, you know, when you do something that's so real and meaningful and you feel like there's almost a an inborn talent for it you can't quite put your finger on it you just feel like you know that this is something that your species has been doing for time immemorial and it just sort of resonates with you so tell me where like where did you grow up i um was born in blue hill but then we moved up to the unorganized territories the unorganized territories <laughs> yes what are so, those in northern maine and the rural parts. Is there's, that an official name? Yeah. Oh. So there's a whole system for places that don't have enough people to make a town, but still need some form of governance. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it is kind of a unique thing to Maine. What drew your parents to, what are they called? The unorganized territories? <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Both of my parents are like fourth or fifth generation Mainers. My mom's family more based on the coast and my dad's family in western Maine. He um, professionally was a land use planner, particularly in rural areas. So he did his graduate thesis on the unorganized parts of Maine and was kind of the one to come up with that structure of how to govern these wild spaces. And so then after he graduated, he moved to Maine and was instrumental in implementing that at the state level. So it was kind of, you know, his brainchild, so to speak. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Sounds <laughs> like he's a really important guy. Yeah. Well, so when I was nine in 1996, my dad died. Um, oh. And he, yeah, he had a issue with gallbladder stones and a surgery that didn't go well. And so it was kind of this sudden shift um, in our family. We stayed in Northern Maine for a few more years after that, but it just, we all kind of realized right around the time that I was getting ready to start high school that our move there was really more his vision than than for my mom. And I think she wanted to be close, um, you know, to the places that she knew just as a form of support in that time so um yeah so that's when we made the move back here did she make a recovery yeah so she's doing really well now she's still actively in treatment but she's like very stable and living a full happy <laughs> life yeah good yeah okay. i realized i was af i was afraid to ask oh <laughs> 
Yeah, like, it, it's such an interesting thing talking about death and illness and, um, you know, especially with um, people that you're meeting for the first time or when you're telling those stories for the first time. It was something that was always really hard for me to do um, as a kid, like moving here um, after my dad had died. It was like each new person that I met, I had to like make that explanation again. And that was like something that I got to the point of like just trying to avoid. It's such an odd um, thing because it's it's something that we all deal with many times in our lives and yet there's still no, there's no training for it. There's no kind of external system that provides help in, in knowing how to communicate about it. So what scares you the most? Ooh, what scares me? Losing my family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like yeah. something terrible happening my brothers or my parents yeah um, and it's gonna happen too that's the worst part you don't want to see your kids die you know so that means you have to see your parents die you have to want to see your parents die yeah yeah I kind of float along in happy oblivion and then occasionally I will wake up in the middle of the night utterly panicked like <gasps> my mom is gonna die and she is I'll gonna be- die but you'll be fine you'll be fine I know see I can't imagine being fine yeah. without my mom it's it's mm. definitely a kick in the stomach yeah. that you can't you get the wind knocked out of you and mm-hmm. like I I kept pictures for a long time nearby you don't have to look at them mm-hmm. but just the fact that you know they're there yeah Whew. <laughs> and then it's weird, like, why Why were we meant to go through? Everybody goes through that, too. Like, I'm not, I'm not unusually, you know, that I lost my mom. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. Or a good friend, or mm-hmm. whatever. Everybody will do that. Everybody gets sad. I see there's a lot of molten metal over here. That's this is what's inside candlesticks. It's called uh, pitch or resin. Oh, okay. And then when you get it on your hands, it burns, and you have to peel it off, and (gasps) gets on your skin comes off. It's nasty. Do you have a pretty significant buildup? I don't see any scars actually. They're fading. You do it when you first start out. Mm. You don't wear gloves or anything. No, then you don't. You can't feel it. You have to really just build up a, you know, the calluses on your. Yeah. Originally coming here thinking, I was like, oh, you know, I think I want to become a young farmer. Like, I'm going to work on some farms, figure out what systems I like, and maybe think about being a grass farmer, if you will, because I really was into animals. But then I, I really noticed that there was this component of the food system missing, namely uh, slaughter and meat processing. It's a huge, and still is, has been, and still is a, a, a big missing component. And um, a good friend of mine, back in 2014, we there was a, actually a grant proposal that we read about that specifically asked if anyone wanted to receive a particularly healthy grant from MFT about a mobile slaughter unit, and we just we just lasered in on it. The selling point of pasture-based slaughter, you know, if you have the privilege of being able to do that, is that the animal is killed in you know in its and it's home. So the animal has no concept of like being pushed around or 
put in a foreign place. I mean, the pork industry actually has uh, this thing called pale soft exudate, which is basically stress in the muscle that uh, during transport or during sort of a particularly nasty kill, it actually leaks into the muscle tissue and makes it soft and unedible, inedible. The stress homework. Yeah, that? yeah. Um, so yeah, stress, um, conscience of the farmer, more oversight, recycling on the farm, and then just the process of reconnecting with death, you know, which is like a huge, which seems to be, I think, I would argue, a major missing component of just being human today, because we don't see babies being born anymore, we don't see people dying anymore, we don't see animals getting killed, and we have this sort of distorted sense of that, and I think historically humans were all exposed to that, and I, somehow I think that makes us more fragile just it's like a major missing part of our evolution as adults i don't know that's just i feel like you know one thing i've noticed i almost feel like i could write a little book about how differently people react to death it's 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 it's, it's interesting to watch people's reaction in what way like there are some men who around slaughter seem to get all macho but i i i've I've come to think, and I've actually read people talk about this too, that it's actually fear. They're just trying to sort of puff up, you know, and do push-ups and crank ACDC and kill some pigs, you know. And really, they're just afraid, I think. So there's that. And then there's people who, like, pretend that they have other things to do and they kind of just don't want to be there or they leave the farm completely. And I respect that, and especially with people who are, like, dairy farmers who are so close to their animals. Yeah. You know, that's that's interesting. And then there are other people who really want to They've read about the topic and they realize that, and, they, and they're coming at it from an intellectual standpoint, they really want to get close to their meat. They feel like they can't eat it unless they've got the blood spilt on them. And mm. It's just, there's all kinds of dynamics. When you're pulling out, specific, particularly with a critter like a pig, who's so similar um, anatomically to, to us, um, just, you know, taking out the innards of a pig and being like, oh, this isn't, this is very similar to me. And life is fragile, and this could be me easily. Do you know what I mean? And just just knowing that it just gets you much more in touch with your own mortality to see how easy it is to be done and to be opened up. It's humbling, and to constantly be reminded of it, um, how fragile we are. What are you afraid of? I, I guess I, I am, um, my grandfather drowned in Sorrento. Oh my God. Like two months before I was born. And so there's this weird thing there where I feel like I've always been obsessed with uh, like water. And um, like I took a free diving class because I'm really interested in breath holding and that kind of thing. And it's not necessarily a fear, but it's like an obsession with that mo like possibility of drowning. Mm. So I like want to fight it or learn more about it or mm -hmm. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know if it's necessarily a fear. So maybe just is a little bit of a mini obsession. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to pretend I'm not afraid of death. I think, I think our gener our society, it's hard to, I'm like, you know, I didn't grow up in Sparta, Sparta, you know, I'm not like super not afraid of death or something. Of course I'm afraid of death, but I'm trying to reconcile that a little bit. I think I'm getting better at it and I'm more and more, I think, afraid of not living well or not seizing opportunity or not living up to potential i think is fear mm -hmm. like like wasted potential to me is something that i'm like really fearful of
One more question about your tattoo. Uh, you kept it for what twenty years? Yeah. Your, yeah, your, it's it's it's. it's, it's so under there, oh, there's an A, and then I put this kind of modern target right mm -hmm. there, and you can barely see it anymore, but it was right there. What and she her? had she had an LM on her ankle. What was her name? Her Angie. Yeah. But what made you decide to finally get it removed? Because it's on my ankle, and I, you know, I know I'm gonna go to the pool with my kids, and it just looks really bad. And I have all my memories of yeah. her, and mm -hmm. and no one's ever gonna take those away. When you, it's anytime you meet someone like as an adult or later on in life, like it's inevitable that they come with a past and with mm -hmm. a complicated history. And has it ever been difficult to sort of live with that in a way? Like, how, how is it that you start a life anew with somebody, given that there's such a strong presence Yeah, you know, it was, um, it was 2001. It was 9-11, and we had just started dating. Wait, is this, is this Angie or is this your wife? My wife now. My wife. Yeah, oh. right, right. And it was, it was weird, but how that really, it made me think that, Life is sh life could end, you know. It could just be over. So I met this girl at the, at that time, and and give your heart up and let go. I remember when we first started dating. I said I needed to go visit her grave for something. I can't remember what it was, and she said, "Yeah, let's go, 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 go." And she, there was nothing jealous about it at all. And that made it go away. Like I used to, I remember I used to joke around and say something, stuff like, well, my first wife would have done that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but then she would come right back with a zing that was, it was awesome, that was great, yes. that I needed him. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you listen to anything while you work? When I'm on a, I know it's going to be a fun day, I'll listen to something that I would listen to when I was 15 or 16. That's the kind of music that you'll always love. Yes. Tell me like what you were listening to at 15 and 16. Well, Love and Rockets was my favorite band. Bauhaus. I used to listen to Prince. I thought he was a god. And David Bowie. David Bowie was my favorite favorite. <sighs> yeah. He, I mean, he was getting up there too and he smoked. And his music will live on. Just like my silver will live on. Yes. Do you feel that sense like that you will leave a legacy? I do. Yeah, yeah. I feel super privileged to even be here. To have learned the trade. These are cool little silver. They're lighters. They're lighters? Yeah, when everybody used to smoke. Wow. We used to sell ashtrays and we used to make ashtrays. It was fun. But nobody would buy an ashtray anymore. Gosh, so as a silversmith, you must kind of see societal changes in a way. That yeah, we used to sell a tea set. It was like once a month in the late 80s. And now. Maybe once a year, if that. This slate right here, this is probably, I don't know, like $30,000 or more, or 40. What? Yeah. It was it's even got 1850, somewhere around there. It has silver Isn't that awesome? icicles yeah. on it. Yeah. And he has a broken reindeer head. Oh so my I'll gosh. fix it. 
and no one will know that it was ever broken. That's the show. But wait, I've got big news, guys. Your story here is now an independent show. We had a great run with the goats at Goat Rodeo, but now we're moving on out into the world. You can still find old episodes of Your Story Here at Goat Rodeo's website. But for the latest episodes, you can visit our new website, yourstoryherepodcast.com. To join our mailing list and get an email notification when a new episode comes out, email yourstoryherepodcast at gmail.com or subscribe using the link on the website. And there's something else that you should absolutely do. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Part of the transition from Goat Rodeo meant deleting old episodes and re-uploading them in iTunes, which means we lost all of our old reviews. So if you're one of the wonderful people who already left a review, but you've been biting your nails thinking, did I word my review optimally? Did I use enough adjectives? Now is your chance to do it again. Even better. And if you haven't left a review, but you've been meaning to, now is the optimal time. Special thanks to Samantha, Lawrence, and Rob for the interviews. To find out more about the bookstore Samantha owns and to see pictures of Rob on the job, check out the show notes on the website, yourstoryherepodcast.com. Thanks as always to my peculiar but lovable little brother Tom Peabody for the original theme music and to all of you for listening. I'm Lizzie Peabody and this is Your Story Here. Don't forget to talk to strangers. That's the show. That's the show. That is the show. That's the show. That's the show. That is the show. That's the show. Let's do that again. Hmm.